Hello and welcome to Here's the Pitch, sponsored by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. Five locations, stlmasses.com is their website. Go there for their menus. Look for directions. If you're driving through St. Louis, you can find them. And uh, if you were a WWE fan, I'm sure you probably went there after you saw Santino Morella entertain you with the Cobra. Uh, I'm so excited today. Santino's with me. Anthony Corelli is here. But uh, they know you as Santino, right? I mean, can you go anywhere without being Santino these days? Yeah, 99% of the world knows me as Santino, so I'll, I'll definitely respond to it. Yeah, and I, again, when I contacted you, I wanted to make sure I was respectful, but I wanted you to know that I knew who Santino was. But uh, thank you for joining me, and uh, I guess right now I want to talk to you, first of all, about what you're up to, because we don't see you as much, but I do know that the Battle Arts Academy is something that uh, you started up in Canada, and I think right now, obviously, everyone with within earshot of COVID, I guess would be everywhere, is having issues. So just tell me how it's going for you right now. I know, I don't know, is it, it's not open, right? Yeah, well, we've been open for seven years. And then, of course, this April, we had the first wave and we shut down. And it was actually an awesome break because it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of work, man. I do everything, you know, from marketing and coaching and payroll and, you know, if something breaks, I got to fix it. And it's a massive job that probably shouldn't be uh, for one person, but uh, it was for a long time. And then we opened back up and everything was just starting to run awesome. And here we go again, uh, phase two. Uh, I also sold a person about half the gym to, to a couple of guys from another company just to retire and, and slow down. I just COVID was an eye opener. You know, I was working, uh, on some days, like 16 hour days, you know, and then working on the weekends and doing other stuff. And I mean, there was one time I worked like seven days a week for like three months. It just, it, it consumes you, you know? So, uh, we've just moved up to the country two weeks ago and, um, I'm going to go in and coach once a week. Someone else is doing the day to day. So we kind of semi retired two weeks ago and, and it feels, feels pretty good, man. I can't, I can't complain. I'm very jealous of you right now. This is this is my dream is to retire, move away from people, and just have land. Yeah, I swear it feels like, it feels like there's no COVID up here. I have acres, and we back on to hundreds of acres of forest, and yeah, you know, you put a mask on to go into the store, but that's it. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. I think because I think you were talking about that when when COVID first hit, it really did just slow everyone down, and it was almost like. Ah, nice. Take a breath. You know, you still, if you, hopefully you have a job, but, but then it went on and on and on and on. Now it's just kind of, it's really a nuisance, but, uh, hopefully there's a vaccine, right? I don't know. I don't know what to say. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Who knows? I I mean, I I don't want to take a vaccine. I just hope it goes away. It's like, okay, we're over it. Um, you would think that if it wasn't popular anymore, like it wasn't the trendy thing to talk about that mysteriously the disease would go away or the virus would go away. So hopefully that's what it is. Something else juicier comes along and all of a sudden, because this is the thing, I, I kind of turned off my media since I moved here, basically. I don't I haven't watched the news. I haven't put it on the, the radio. And all of a sudden the world's problems don't seem so serious because you're not, not in your face all day. And I think most people, I mean, we're so glued to the media because, oh my God, what else is happening? We know we'll get, what else can go wrong? <clears throat> But if you just turn away from it, like social media, sometimes just people should take breaks, you know, and take, um, what do you call me? You don't eat for a while. A fast. fast you yeah. know, they should have some media fasts. 
I do it all the time. I actually started following one person because I, I was they were just doing a lot of news right in a row. And this morning, it was just nonstop bad things. And I'm, I'm like, I don't need this first thing in the morning. So I did, went ahead and deleted that account and didn't, didn't read it. But that's what you, you have to do. And watch Enjoy Podcast uh, with former WWE superstars. So I, again, yeah, appreciate it. If, if I was driving as much, like when I was driving to work every morning or driving on the road, podcasts are fantastic, man, to kill some time and get some information, be entertained, and, and get to where you need to get without being bored. Yeah, and so on this podcast, I really do get to the point where I want to hear the rise of of how people became and what how it got there. And I think a lot of people remember your story at Raw, just coming out of the seats, and now you're Santino Morella and you, you you fly. But tell me about those years early before that. Where where did it start? What made you? I know you had kind of a judo background, and so you had a martial arts background. But who who says, hey man, you might want to get in the ring? You know, there's an independent. Just give me a little bit about that early 2000, 2001 for you, where you decide to do this. Yeah, for me, it was. I guess I wrestled in university and amateur wrestling as well. This is '93, and then uh, there's a guy on my team, and his dad was Don Koloff, and his dad was a professional wrestler, wrestled in Calgary Stampede, wrestled in, uh, in WWF at the time, and he had a school just north of Toronto. And I was just, I had that moment where I'm like, oh my God, this is just a, a life-changing moment here where I just found my, I just connected with my future and my destiny. And then, I, you know, I graduated university and worked in the corporate world a little bit. And, but I always knew I was going to do it. It just had to be the right time. And yeah, when it was the right time, we started training. And after about a year, I had my first match. And then after about six matches, I realized that there was really... Like, nobody was seeing these matches. This is before, you know, social media and smartphones. So you're, you're lucky if you get a VHS copy, and then you, well, you get a mail VHS. Anyway, so I said, I have to get out of here. <clears throat> and the one connection we had at the time was Japan. One of my coach's former students had an MMA fight and was doing a work shoot style for a company called Battle Arts in Japan. And... You know, I said, can you call them? Can I Can I go there? So I packed up. I sat my daughter down and said, hey, I got to go on this mission, man. And, you know, I'll be back in every three months, but I, I got to go there for a couple of years and, and and do this, you know. So she was supportive and understanding and I uh, flew over there with my bags and had to pay my dues, man. I, I got a, I stayed in a hostel for uh, like a few days till I found an apartment. It was a little batch. So what the hell was it? About maybe 500 bucks or like 500, 470 bucks. How many people are in your room with you and how many showers? It was just me. It was a okay. little, little bachelor apartment, yeah. It wasn't like the movie, right? Not the movie where you got crazy people down the hall. It was <laughs> the size of a bedroom with like a little bar fridge and a one burner and a one sink. And I had to fight my way through the dojo, you know, show up there and grapple everybody. And, and uh, as I got in better shape, I was good at grappling, but I was in horrible shape cardiovascularly. And then, and after I got in shape, I beat everybody in the gym. And, and then they gave me um, an opportunity to have a match. And then everything was going great. And then I overstayed one of my tourist visas by like a week. And I was banned from Japan for uh, a year. And I was just like, what the hell? You know, I had to reformulate my game plan. I had to come home and and figure out the next step and that was when i went to ovw again packed up the car drove down got a little apartment and, and started training with rip rogers 
and um, I was learning pretty fast. I was training really hard because I was away from home, and uh, you know, I told myself if you're going to be away from home, you got to maximize every single second. And I was training three times a day with Al Snow, with Rip Rogers in the gym, sometimes private morning classes with Rip Rogers. Um, he would work at a at a Circle K all night the night shift and then he would come straight to the, to the gym and we would meet him there and he would train us privately for two hours and really expedited because one thing I forgot to mention, I'm already 31 years old at this point. I started training at 28, had my first match at 29, realized that I'm wasting time here. All of 30, I'm in Japan, get banned. 31, I moved to OVW. Now I'm learning from scratch because I don't know how to wrestle WWE style. I just do work shoots and, you know, like that's it, this kind of MMA style. So then in a, in a year, this took a couple years from the day I started training to the day I got signed. No, to the day I got called up, actually. Sorry. I got there in May 05 and I got signed in, I believe, August 06. And then I had to go home for a few months while they got my visa in order. And then I came back in like November 06 and I got called up in April 07. What, so what is that? Tell me a little bit about that time frame because, you know, a lot of guys either they get uh, some promos that start before they go out and, and do their thing or there's some video package that are created. So are you are you kind of doing your Santino? You're not Santino in OVW, but are you starting to oh, learn? Of course. Yeah, are you doing that stuff? Because that whatever you're doing as Santino is totally a, kind of a comedy style. So did you know? I guess I'm saying, did you, were you doing that sort of style? Or no, not at all. Yeah, I was the exact opposite. If you later on go on YouTube and look up Boris Alexiev OVW, and that was my character. I was this Russian shoot fighter. And when my music would hit, the place would absolutely go into this frenzy because I was going to come out and murder someone. And I would murder someone every week and I was squashing people and the character was getting over and it was believable. And uh, my best friend back home, he's, he's Croatian. So I get the microphone and I'd say a few things in Croatian and people thought I was legitimately Russian. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was totally different. No, I and then uh, what? Yeah, I've seen it, but that's what I mean is because you're you're doing this this whole different thing, and then you show up in WWE. Yeah, it I, changes. So I'm I'm driving to a live event in uh, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and I get a call by the office, and they saw my name. You know, Anthony Corelli. It looks Italian, and and uh, Mike Bucci, who was working in talent relations at the time, he was Nova from ECW. He said, "I think Boris is actually Italian." So they called me up and they said, "Hey, can you speak Italian?" And I was like, yeah, sure, you know, yeah, you know. And they said, okay, say some stuff. And I, I said, like, a few lines of, like, limited Italian. And they were like, oh, that sounds pretty good, you know. Like, Can you say some more? And I said, like, a little more. And they go, okay, I guess that's good. And then literally they sent me my passport and flew me to Milan the next day. And I got there on – I left on Saturday. I got there on Sunday. And I debuted on Monday. And – like I thought they were gonna figure out I can't speak Italian and pull the plug because it was it was uh on the whole flight there I downloaded like eight DVDs of or eight CDs of, of Italian on my iPod and I'm just drinking coffees and I'm trying to memorize as much Italian as possible. So I used to work downtown Toronto 
And I drove for a year, every day, rush hour traffic, so over an hour. And in my car, I had this cassette tape. It's actually around here somewhere. I had, I had a cassette. It was tourist Italian. And, you know, they'd play, reach the end, flip over, play. And it would just constantly be looping in the car. And they'd be listening to this conversation. And it was complete tourist Italian. Like, where's the hotel? How much is a room? I'd like a half kilo of cheese. And it was ran random sentences that I used and actually convinced them that I could speak Italian. But I wouldn't have done that if uh, a month earlier, Dusty Rhodes came to OVW. And there was a guy named Fearless Jack Bull. He's an incredible, hilarious character of like a, you know, disgruntled stuntman, he's an alcoholic and everything. It was really funny. And one day Dusty Rhodes called him and said, hey, can you ride a motorcycle? And he's like, yeah, right, this is Dusty Rhodes. He, he thought it was someone doing an impression. And he's like, uh, no. He goes, well, can you learn to ride a motorcycle? And he's like, no. And Dusty Rhodes is like, well, okay, you have a nice day. And then he sees the 203 area code, realizing it's actually Stanford, Connecticut, meaning it's, a, it's an office phone for Dusty. And he was just beside himself. And the bad part is the opportunity. He was going to be called up and ride like Harleys with like the Undertaker or something because he was a big guy. And the opportunity never came around again for him. And it was just crazy how tragic that is. But then Dusty Rhodes came to OVW because Cody was going there at the time. And he had a you know a meeting in front of all the staff, all the developmental staff at the time, <clears throat> talent. And he said, he brought up the call. And he's like, where's Jack Bull? And they had a laugh over it. And he said, look, if anyone ever asks you if you can do anything, the answer is yes, absolutely. Want me to ride a horse, do dirt bikes, whatever you want, speak Italian, and then you better learn how to do it before you got to do it, you know? So um, that was in the back of my head immediately. And uh, I said I could speak Italian, and I got by, you know? But afterwards, I started learning Italian for real. Rosetta Stone, I even had a tutor. I knew I'd have to return to Italy and cut a promo one day. So we went back a year and a half later and I was able to cut a promo in the ring. I mean, and that's the greatest thing to me is that, you know, you're doing your thing as Boris and you're trying to do everything you think is right. And then Vince or whoever, obviously Vince, cause he's the head, but he's got this idea. He obviously knows who you are, but like, uh, call him up, tell him he's going to be a, an Italian guy. And he's going to come out of the crowd and, and, and and so you get you can't even have time to develop this character, right? I mean, you just have oh, to, yeah. you just jump out of the crowd. You and Umaga get into it. I think you you uh, Bobby Lashley helps you pin him, and away we go, right? I mean, tell me just then what happens as you're trying to develop the character because you you come in. It, 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 was well, it supposed to be was it, it supposed know. to be a comedy character at the top or was no. it? In the beginning, he was supposed to be a babyface, but. You know, people really rejected the idea of some guy coming out of the crowd and being able to hang with WWE superstars. Sneak a victory over Sheldon Benjamin, sneak a victory over Chris Masters. Like, who is this guy? Bullshit, you know? And um, it wasn't working. And then one time I had a rematch with Umaga, and he was, like, just decimating me. And the crowd was like, one more time, like, kill this guy. And they were like, yeesh, this is not working. So then they, they said, well, let's turn him heel. And... You know, we'll see what happens there. If it doesn't work, see you later, repackage, whatever you want to call it. And immediately when I turned heel, I popped Vince, and he thought it was hilarious. And um, then I got the mic like four weeks in a row. 
you know, I was doing guest commentary, in-ring promos, and then it just really took off from there, actually. But the first, it was probably a couple months where it was kind of floundering um, as a babyface, yeah. What and I, I'm I'm very just amazed at this the way that you go from having this one style and then you come in to the biggest company in the world and now you have to do this again kind of a comedy act but you really kind of have to redo whatever you do in the ring right because that's not what you were doing correct or it seems like there was more of the kind I of the a little bit of comedy stuff before I was Boris Alexiev I was Boris Koloff <clears throat> and I was doing some a little bit of comedy stuff. Uh, at OVW, and then that's when Paul Heyman came. He saw me during a practice, and he had this idea for Boris Alexiev, and he he created Boris Alexiev, and um, he's so smart. Vince always loved the Russian powerlifter Alexiev, so he gave me that last name to just associate and pique his interest. And they they were gonna I was gonna be like a like a Taz, but a bit of a better <laughs> better version of Taz. And um, you know, being five ten. Same thing happened to Taz. If Taz is like five eight or something, you can't go in there and beat up Kane when you're five eight. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. But as a heel, once I realized the heel just became funny naturally, and then it didn't take long to become comedic. And then I realized that like I'm kind of alone in this boat. I, I got this comedy slice of the pie kind of nailed down, and and it's I'm, there's no competition. And that was really good for longevity. I was with the company for 10 years. That's, that's another thing that I, I think about and I'll get into. But I, I was curious about just creatively. How, how much do you get to talk about what you want to do creatively? Or is it all 100% the writers and Vince and Stephanie? Or do you go, listen, I got an idea, you know? I, I, and then when you go yeah, out there, I mean... All of the above, actually. Yeah, tell me. Like, I mean, uh, in, in the beginning, I was uh, <clears throat> assigned Brian Gewertz, the writer, who is very funny. He does works with The Rock now, and he's um, he, he kind of got the character, you know, and he got he knew the way I would deliver it. He would write stuff. Everything he wrote in the beginning that was a comedy gold, that was all Brian Gewertz. And then it was like, well, then he went somewhere else. So I had other writers, but then it was like they gave me points, like point form, and I just say them my own way. And then at the end, I had a lot more input. So it was on a sliding scale. In the beginning, it was completely written, memorized this page. And by the end, <clears throat> it'd be, say something like this. And just make sure you hit this and this. And then I go and bring it to life myself. Um, yeah, but if you ever have an idea and you want to sit down and talk to Vince or, or Hunter, they are so welcoming and they, you know, your ideas are well-received. They're awesome. You have all the resources to succeed around you. You just got to, you know, work well with others. When, you, when you're a heel, you get to work you know, with the biggest names of all time, those Stone Cold and Piper, uh, you know, the Honky Tonk Man I, was part of this. Uh, you had all these guys that you, you got to deal with as, as the heel. So at some point, are you like, this is probably the, the way to go? Or did that just kind of help spur you into being that 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 face, the comedy face that everyone enjoyed? Well, it's interesting. When, when you're a comedy heel, it's almost like you're indestructible. Like, what, are you going to lose a match? And and you're, I hate using the word perceived stock value, but uh, it's not going to, it can't go down. <clears throat> and Arn Anderson would say, he goes, God damn it, Santini, you invented the perfect character. You can't screw up. If people screw up, they think it's on purpose. You said, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't screw up. Everything I did was just, <clears throat> literally, when I screwed up, if something happened, 
people thought it was part of the act. And then I, then I then I found out that you can screw up on purpose to make it look like a legitimate accident. People love it. I used to do this thing where I'd, I do it every single day. My entrance, I walk to the ring, I go stand on the second rope and I trip <laughs> and I catch myself on my stomach on the top rope. And I'd be like mortified, like, oh my God. And I'd try and be like hide behind the referee. Like, I can't believe I just fell off the rope. And the audience would go apeshit for it. And then to the point where they wanted me to go back up on the rope and do it again successfully. And then I'd be like, yeah, you think so? Yeah. And I'd go up and do it. And they're already cheering. The match hasn't even started yet. And I'm like, God, I got them in the palm of my hand already just from screwing something up. And then I, then I would do all these different layers where, like, for example, let's say Jack Swagger gave me a, a tackle and I go and do like a nip up, you know, and I'd fail that. People would be laughing. Jack Swagger would be laughing. And I'd be like, I could do it. And I'd try again and I'd fail. And then I try again and I fail, fail, fail. I get pissed off, kick the rope, and I'm like, damn it. And that was just planting a seed. And then later on, I do something and go up and over and try to pick him up for a body slam, and I couldn't do it. And all of a sudden, I had all these things that I couldn't do. And then at the end of the match, all of a sudden, I do a nip up and I'm successful. The audience cheers. He comes running. I duck one, turn around, pick him up for that body slam. I finally get it. And it was just like, dominoes you know you set it the whole match you're setting everything up and at the comeback you just knock them all down and that was when i really started mastering the, my craft near the end just before my neck said that's enough yeah i mean that's an amazing it's an amazing story too because like you said i mean comedy guys you know it that can get old on on the, on the fans like they can all right seen that bit but people were not ready for you to leave but I, I, I watched a lot of stuff before because I wanted to get, get myself reacclimated. When you when you defeat Jack Swagger and the pop of that crowd, what, is that the best pop? You know, you win the U.S. title. I mean, it's one of those you know you know underdog stories. That, that, was a, that was a good time in my career because that was very close to the elimination chamber. I think at WrestleMania I was the captain of Team Teddy versus Team Johnny. Um, won the U.S. title. I actually forgot the U.S. title when my entrance in WrestleMania. Um, Zach Ryder's like, where's the title? And I'm just like, <gasps> and I don't draw any attention to it. I forgot it back in Gorilla. Um, the Elimination Chamber was... But see, was there's something you could just run back and go get it, and everyone's like, oh, he forgot the title. <laughs> I, I could have. It would have been, uh, been a Santino thing to do. Um, the Elimination Chamber was probably the loudest I ever had in an audience. When I hit Daniel Bryan with the Cobra, and, and I was just we, we were the final two, and one person ever only kicked out of the Cobra with the sock on it, and that was Daniel Bryan at that moment. So the people were really well conditioned to believe that that's it, and they were like, "This guy's going to win the, the the title," and uh, that was the biggest one. Two, no, they popped on the actual Cobra because that was that's it, and then the one two, oh, and it was a really, and I man, it was that that was a cool moment too. I re and I really this was when I was really watching when you when you started calling yourself the greatest intercontinental title uh, championship of all time and I really was hoping that you would hold this thing for five years because it it would have been great I mean because the honky tonk man was a comedy character even though he was a really good heel uh, it was really a comedy comedy character if you saying that you're going to be the greatest it just was funny and uh, who was kind of behind all of I mean you have writers you have Brian you have everybody around but how how much did you want to embrace that well in the beginning the honkometer that that was brian gewurz he was still around for that and then uh, you, you know what's funny 
um, when I do signings and I meet people, everybody brings up the fact that the honkometer was stopped too soon. And they're like, man, it was, we don't understand. We thought you were going to have the title for a year, come close to breaking the Honky Tonk Man's title, maybe not breaking it, or maybe breaking it. But we started counting the weeks pretty early. We were like you know, 12, 13, 14 weeks. We were really early in, in a year. And they were going to go They were going to go with it for the whole year. And then all of a sudden, they um, wanted a more legitimate, tough guy holding the title. Well, it was wrong. Yeah, I, it was, uh, people remember that, the honk meter. It was the, and I just thought it was the greatest, it was the greatest idea. And the, the fact that you did, because you did it so early, also made it funny that you were going to, hey, this is week 12, I'm going to make it 63 weeks or whatever it was. I think it was, uh, it was pretty funny. I love that your, your name uh, is, is associated with Gorilla Monsoon. Did you, yeah. were you a fan of his? Uh, Gorilla and, my, and yeah. Bobby Heenan, I mean, were my childhood. Watched the Monday night uh, primetime every, every Monday. I still see watch some of those just because Gorilla and, and uh, Bobby together were my, my favorite. I'm, I'm assuming just by that response that it was probably some sort of, it felt good to be associated with Gorilla. Yeah, it was, you know, there's a little extra added pressure because you want to do the name right. And um, I knew immediately when they said Santino Morella, I go, oh, my God, this is a tribute to Gorilla Monsoon and Joey Morella. Um, and he's actually one of my favorite commentators. My voice is a little messed up right now, but I am going to come back after COVID as a commentator for one company. I, I, I did some stuff at the Performance Center right before COVID hit. I would like to get main event and make that my own and do commentary. Um, so, yeah, I'll study and watch Gorilla Monsoon. He was, he was fantastic. Now you, I think I've read you don't want to do it as Santino though. You want to be Anthony. Yeah, I want. Yeah, I want. To, it's it's too distracting to do that, Santino. Yeah, how hard is it to do the accent all the time? I mean, when you, it's a, that's a, you know, a lot of guys get to go like Roman Reigns is, you know, can be quiet and it, and you have to run into this accent and learn some Italian and John Kina and just saying these things over and over. How hard was it? That seems a little bit hard, right? Yeah, you know what? For for some reason, for me, it was an absolute. It was a flick of a switch. It was very easy, and in fact, I do a kids' TV show in Canada um, for Treehouse, and um, the the director of the show is a wrestling fan, so he he got me to basically I'm recycling the accent of Santino, but I'm called Alfredo, and I'm a mailman and fix it up for us, and uh, so I still use the accent from time to time. Yeah, you have to. It's your it's your thing. Who who was your crew? Who were your guys that you rode with? And everyone talks about those those long trips in, in the in the vans. I know you guys get private jets now, but did you have kind of a crew of guys? Yeah, no, no, there's no private jets for us. <laughs> Only if there's a European tour or something. Um, my first three years, I rode uh, Randy Orton and myself, and uh, those were some fun years. St. Louis is owned, by the way. You have a big yeah, big fan. Right, St. Louis, and then he got his bus, and I was like. The hell am I gonna do now? You can come with me. I'm not coming on your bus, man. I gotta live on your couch. Um, and then the, the middle few years was like Vladimir Kozlov, and that, that was that was a tremendous amount of fun. He's awesome to be on the road with. And then the last few years was Brodus Clay and Damian Sandow, and that was a very funny car. Just very funny. Three funny guys, three personalities that that complimented each other and it was just very interesting those are two guys that well Bo, i'm gonna say brodus i loved all of it every time and he did the same thing every time it was sort of godfather-esque like he would just do the same bit there'd be the song and the dancing 
And I was like, I could watch this every night. And we, we became fans of that. And I was mad that that went away so fast. Uh, same thing, obviously, with Sandow. He was, he was doing a Mizdow thing. And it, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so hard, right? He, he's so talented. It, it's, it's crazy. Both, both guys are super talented. And, and Brodus, Brodus is like, he's a monster, man. This guy's like a 500-pound bencher. Um, guy, he was up to 500 pounds at one point. He's, he's in the threes. Like, he's a humongous dude. And really intelligent guy. Vince McMahon, um, he seemed to re- embrace his character, right? Did, how much, how much did you get from Vince uh, as this thing was getting big from you? For you, was he kind of always? You know, I, didn't, I, I always wished I had more interaction with Vince. I'm a huge Vince fan, like as a man, and as an alpha male, and as a, a workaholic, and as a person that can delegate and run the ship. And he's the captain of the ship. Uh, I, you know especially after going into business for myself, I realized, man, this guy's amazing. I, I love Vince McMahon. I wish he knew. I wish I had a chance to sit down and say, you, you know, you have no idea how much of a positive influence you've been on me, just just watching you do your thing. And uh, But once in a while, if I knock on the door, again, it was always so well-received, and he's welcoming, and he, he t- turns around, glasses off, and he's gonna, he looks you in the eye, you know, and, and it's, man, I, I love Vince. He's awesome, man. Yeah. Do you uh, you have a favorite rib that you'd like to share with us here? I know that people, you know, in baseball we call them pranks, but uh, they call it a rib in, in wrestling. There's obviously happening all the time. Do you have one that sticks out that you always say, oh, that's one of my favorites? Oh, man. You and Cody got into one, I think, right? But I don't know if that was an actual rib with the weight loss was thing. That? Wasn't there a weight loss type thing? You two were kind of getting into it with each other? Oh, yeah. Well, that started as a – what did I do? It's something about I put a cupcake on his bag, and then he put a cupcake in my bag, and I was pissed because it was Europe. And then he was—he said something on the bus about me being fat, and uh, I was at the time. And I was like, I said, yeah, but, I mean, I can lose weight, and I have better genetics for you than you did to win a bodybuilding contest. And he thought, like, it was the most outrageous comment he's ever heard in his life. And um, this was in, on a November European tour. <clears throat> And we kind of made this bet, and we were drinking, and we shook hands on it, and now we had to stick to it. And the bet was at WrestleMania, we're going to have a one-on-one bodybuilding showdown. <laughs> and I remember I really I, I took it serious because there was, like, prizes involved. Um, <clears throat> there was a 10-foot sta- um, trophy. Rey Mysterio donated a mask. Jericho was donating something else. John Morrison donated something else. And it was just, it was called muscle. It took on a life of its own. Cena made shirts. It was called muscle mania. And it was pictures of me and Cody and these cartoons facing each other. And it was supposed to be a powerlifting contest. And, and then finally at the WWE WrestleMania after party, we're going to get on stage and we're going to pose down and do the whole thing. And I took it serious. He was already in shape from day one. It was complete tortoise in the hair situation. He was, he was there. And then slowly, every week, I lost like one pound. I did my hour of cardio every day, and I got a posing coach, and I got a nutritionist, and um, I just trained every single day because it's com- the competition was good for me because I needed the competition to get motivated. I was complacent because I was, I was a comedy character. I didn't have to be ripped, so I can go out and eat and enjoy what I want to eat and do what I want. But I got a little out of shape. So this was great. I was getting back in, in shape, and come WrestleMania – I followed the whole, you know, you play with your water. You have to drink like gallons and gallons for days and stop drinking water and dehydrate. And they eat sweet potatoes and that last little bit of tightening. So I had a six-pack 
a real legit six pack intercostals. I was shredded for like 48 hours and I beat him in the competition. And I think he hates me a little bit inside to this day. And um, if he has any say, I'll probably never get hired at AEW because of that. I was going to say, that shows the dedication that you have. Uh, obviously, you don't take anything lightly. You, you take it to the max. You did it with well, the I character. I told him in the bus one time, I said, buddy, are you kidding me? I said, I learned a language just to cut a promo. Imagine what I'm going to do to win this competition. And, uh, yeah, I did a lot. <laughs> yeah. You had injuries before, but this neck injury in 14 kind of ended it. But did you? I know you announced a retirement. Was there ever a point where you were a year later thinking, man, I feel okay, you know? And we saw Steve Austin had the same thing. He had this really bad neck injury. He comes back, has another one. He's like, yeah, I'm coming back. Or did you know the doctors said, this is it, I should stop? Well, that was interesting because my retirement announcement wasn't, uh, a, wasn't where it's supposed to be a retirement announcement. We were in Toronto. And it was the third time I was incapacitated by my neck. And I was going to have surgery. We just made the decision to go ahead and have surgery. So I just asked permission to speak in front of the Toronto audience. Unfortunately, I had to speak with my Santino accent. I didn't want to. I wanted to speak as myself. <clears throat> and I just let them know. I said, look, I have to go get surgery. You know, we're going to try and come back. I don't know if I'm going to come back. So if this is it. And if I'm not going to come back, the only regret I ever had is that I was never introduced as being from Toronto because I'm a proud Canadian, proud Torontonian. And, um, yeah, I, 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 a lot of people in Canada don't even know. I get people in my old neighborhood to like, what the hell are you doing here? Well, I live here, man. I'm from here. And they're like, you're Canadian. And they, they, they just didn't know. Cause a lot of people, they watch TV and they don't, you know, look further. They don't go online and, look up stuff. They just watch the, the program and enjoy it. Um, so anyway, then we're driving to Montreal for like raw. And all of a sudden my phone's blowing up. Like you just retired, bro. You retired, you retired. And I'm like, Oh my God, did I just retired. I don't think so. And then we had the surgery. And then three months after the surgery, there was a little bit of a botch. We had to rego. We had to go back in. And I think that kind of messed some stuff up going in twice. And, um, and then I just tried to come back, and it just never got well enough to come back. And, I mean, I could have a match here and there, but to go on the road, and you know, what, what am I going to do? So let's have a match, but hey, I can only do the offense. You know, it's, it doesn't work that way. So, yeah, we just bowed out, and I was going to – I wanted to be like a general manager or something like that. And that was it. You know, I was kind of – I was already – how old was I? Gosh, I was 40. You know, so I spent my whole 30s doing wrestling, and it was a good chapter. I was pretty – I had good closure. I don't watch it now. I wish I could be in there dropping an elbow off the top rope. I, I'm, I'd like to be a commentator, but, you know, that'll happen in time. Yeah. Um, the Hall of Fame, does that interest you at all? I, I think you're a Hall of Fame character. Um, a lot of people <laughs> say that, actually. Um, it does. It does. Um, my daughter's training right now. She's 25 years old and she's, uh, you know, she's a blue chipper. She's five foot eight. She's a former Miss Teen Ontario. She's a biology degree. She's, you know, she's athletic. She's jacked. She's an actress. So she's probably going to go down next year, you know, as soon as COVID's over, go down to NXT. And she'll be, I imagine by the time she's 28, 
you see her on Raw or SmackDown, she'll get a you know be able to have an opportunity to build her brand for several years up there. Uh, when she's on the road, I would like to get inducted if I could time it, you know, just so that where the whole family's there and it's a special moment. Like if it's one of those weekends where she's having her first WrestleMania match and Dad's getting inducted to the Hall of Fame, that that'll be incredible. They won't make her dress like a man, though, right? And have you be Miss yeah, Santini? These days, you, know? you did it, though. <laughs> you did it, though. You you did everything they asked you, right? You dry, I'll be missing. And, and that was the, so a lot of people, like my original coach, when he saw me dressed as Santina, he was like, ooh, that's not a good sign. That's usually the end, you know, when they try and squeeze out every last drop of entertainment, you know, they, they dress you up as a woman. But I did it. I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to knock this out of the park. You give me lemons, I'm making the best lemonade you ever had. And um, it was so good. It was supposed to be one night, but it lasted for three months because Vince thought it was so goddamn hilarious. And uh, it was actually some of my best work in terms of acting and just getting into a character. Um, some of the backstage stuff was really funny. And then, yeah. So my son right now is two years old. So, you know, if the Hall of Fame was in four or five years i think that'd be pretty good and i'll be 50 years old and hopefully he'll remember it you know watching dad on stage okay so if they call for next year's hall of fame you're not going you're gonna wait yeah, just take a pass <laughs> i'm not i can't make it can i said call me when i'm 50 man <laughs> well the glamazon that was in the hall of fame and like, we were a duo and i know in terms of legendary multiple time champions i, I wouldn't be judged in that capacity I'd be there because of the com the comedic character and some of the stuff I've done. JTG always, from the beginning, he's like, if you stop now, man, you're already in the Hall of Fame. If you stop now, I mean, he's saying this like two or three years in. He goes, you're already Hall of Fame. You're already in the Hall of Fame. I'm like, stop saying it, man. You're going to jinx it. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. But that is, see, the, this conversation we're having, it's because I was thinking, yeah, Bushwhackers are in. Uh, but you're, I mean, you, you, and then maybe that's the Hall of Fame, obviously, is something that's just very subjective with uh, the WWE. Yes. Uh, but, but you did this for so long, and you could have, who knows how long you could have done it. You were doing it at, at the top of your game. So I, I don't, I, I don't think you need me to say this, but it, I think it would be obviously way more because of just the comedy act. It was, I mean, you just entertained way better, and you did this thing for so long. Uh, you know, I, I actually have to ask you, can you cut a promo on me for 10 seconds? I need a, I need a Santino promo. I don't know if you can do one for 10 seconds. I'm Brad. Uh, I'm a loser from St. Louis. You got anything? <laughs> so, Brad, you've been talking long times with your big mouth about what you can do to Santino Marella. Son of my gun, Brad, when I grip you with my manly grip, I'm going to crush your esophagus and make you spit blood. That's good. It's very, it's very violent. That's, that, I don't remember Santino being that mean. <laughs> he gets angry sometimes. He has a bad temper. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. You know what? When I meet a lot of people these days, I just assume that everyone's favorite was Randy Orton and John Cena, you know, and Edge and stuff like that. But I meet tons of guys that they, they thank me for getting them uh, back into wrestling. And, uh, Guys come up to me, even some of the boys, the wrestlers. Like my wife hates wrestling; she she's forced to watch it. She does; it's boring. She goes, "But you, even Hulk Hogan, he's like you're my wife's favorite wrestler." She goes, "Honey, the Cobra's on." <laughs> um, and there's something about the character 
that was endearing to people that you didn't have to be a hardcore, you know, guys that love Triple H and Batista, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a different character. So, yeah, so I'm finding out that I was apparently a lot of people's favorites over the years, and it just blows my mind. I'm like, yeah, me, <laughs> settling for so little. <laughs> There's so many better wrestlers. Well, I even, to me, like, even the the theme song, when the thing hits, and you know, there's a lot of guys you hear their theme thing, it's like, oh shit. <laughs> but yours comes, ah, and it's you, and it's like everyone gets excited yeah. to have you. I know. It's it's just such a cool thing. I think it has to be the greatest thing to just have that. I would love to have that around my house, just when I walk into a room, have the music go on, and people, yeah. people boo me in my house, so I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, well, good luck, man, on the uh, comment. Now, if you're a commentator, would you. Would you heal it up, or are you going to be? Are you going to give us a character, not Santino, but would you kind of be the angry Whatever guy? Want. <laughs> Whatever they need. I would like to do play-by-play -play a little bit, and but I think I'm going to be more of the storyteller guy. That you know will be like if it's a tag match, you know Kofi Kingston, he has to make it to the corner, he has to make the tag if they want to win this match, that kind of thing. And I think I can do stuff where, where I, I, I you know, like Jr. used to do, like. He's going up to the top rope. Is he going to go for it? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's flying through the air and blah, 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 and that kind of stuff to really just add to the excitement of the program. And if you watch old Vince and, and Gorilla Monsoon, they were just trying to make it sound like, you got to be here. This is incredible. Look, the crowd is going crazy. They're on their feet. And, uh, you know, and they see the crowd and they're not. But uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I have to offer to the programmer. That was a good demo, and when I was uh, when I was in uh, in my late teens, early twenties, I applied to be <laughs> the play-by-play -play man. There was they would put you know the jobs were out there. I don't even this was before WWE. Yeah, way before the internet. Oh, I, right. I had a play-by-play -play career, but I wasn't you know it was very it was high school football, and I'm like shit. I'm sending one. I can do this. You know, uh, it was a dream of mine. And now that I that I know more about it, that Vince is in your ear telling you what to say, the travel. Screaming at you. Yeah, I'm too old for that. <laughs> but good luck to you. Hopefully. Yeah, that's why I want to do color because I think the play-by-play -play guy is getting screamed at. So I'll just add, like, I'll be the Jerry Lawler and just add some tidbits of enjoyment. Well, I really appreciate your time. Again, the Battle Arts Academy, uh, it, was, it was something you started, but I'm sure people can find it in Toronto. Is there anything we missed? I enjoyed this conversation. I, I guess, can I ask you about Jim Cornette? I saw that, that story way, way back in the day. Do you, do you guys have any heat still? I, I have no heat with Jim Cornette. I'm way too busy to care about that okay. guy. But, you know he has a legacy of those types of relationships with people. And that's, that's really what he's going to leave behind is those, all those negative interactions. But, you know, he took advantage of a situation a long time ago and, you know, I've had a great life since then. So I, I don't wish any bad upon him. You're on the upswing. That's all we'll say. Right. Uh, is it, did, yeah, yeah. did I miss anything? We, I, we've had a longer chat than I expected, but I enjoyed it really. And I really do. I, the, the evolution of the character, uh, was something that was really interesting to me, and that's why I reached out. And I also, I believe you should be in the Hall of Fame. Is there anything I, I may have missed, Anthony? That's about it. We talked about the origins and the so creative control and Santina, and I mentioned my daughter and battle arts. And, yeah, I think we covered pretty much everything, who I rode with and stuff. And, yeah, thank you, man. Fun questions. I appreciate that. All-encompassing. 1.9 seconds in the Royal Rumble. He's the, the, the record holder there. I'll leave with that. Another good record to have. Well, that's another idea. Uh, I mean, an example of given lemons, make lemonade. I knew it was going to be a quick in and out. So I requested, I had to put in an actual request and Dean Malenko had to go and ask, I think Vince, can I attempt to break the record? And they approved it. 
And then I had to get together with Kane and say, okay, I'm doing this. I'm popping right up. You got to be there right at that moment. We're going to, we're going to do it. And it was perfect execution. If you watch it back. And I was nervous because I'm like, if I slip or anything happens or I don't go over on the clothesline, like I'm, I'm not breaking the record. I'm trying to break the record. And they tried to break it like three times now and they can't break it. So I have to ask, this is my last question, I promise, but the, you talked about the Royal Rumble and it's my favorite event. It's still great. It's, it's been great from day one. The, the concept of two men. It, yeah, it's just the greatest thing. But I'm curious, obviously there's these, it's blocked out and we know who's going to win and we work backwards. But what happens when there's that lull of, all right, we got now we got six guys in there. We got eight guys. Are you guys just like looking at you, you know, trying to, someone's going to tell you when it's time to go, right? And, and, and how do you figure out, who, all right, who am I going to lock up with now? And Because there's no, who, who's going out before you? If you know who's going out before you, and when that guy goes, you get you start getting ready to go. But you know, some guys have incredible memories, and they know, like, like for example, Jamie Noble, who's lately in charge of the Royal Rumble. He knows who's the whole thing. He knows who's going out after who, by who. Um, yeah, he has an incredible memory. But yeah, basically, you get a sense for how long it's going to last, and how long it's going to take, and how much time it's going to take between things so you can you can get together with somebody and, and put together some stuff and um you know that that's going to take place in between spots and you have to also remember that there's only one area of focus if the ring was dark and there's a spotlight it would be on one thing at a time so you don't want to do stuff at the same time and take away from someone else's moment you know it's all spotlighted and highlighted moments yeah, and that's that's exactly what I would think. Is like there's got to be hey, there's going to be a spot over here. Let's make sure we're not doing something over here. I think it's great. Um, I really did. I appreciate this time, and again, hopefully, good luck to you. And we'll hear you on main event or somewhere on WWE, AEW, Impact. There's plenty of room for for your yeah. voice out there. I appreciate your time. There is. Thank you so much. Have a great night. All right. Thank you, and thanks, uh, Anthony uh, Santino, for joining me on Here's the Pitch, sponsored by Masses Restaurants, five locations. STLMasses.com is your website. Go there, check out their menus, find the directions, and say hello. And we'll see you next time.